0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, May 9th, 2014. From Slate, this is The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Octopuses are amazing. And octopuses is the right way to say it. It's not octopi. I heart, heart, heart octopuses they have three hearts. How amazing is that? They're like Lady Gaga because we're so into the choreography and the meat suits we hardly notice what a great songwriter she is. I mean, if it weren't for the whole eight-armed thing, octopuses would just be known, oh, they're that three-hearted animal and they'd still be these unique, awesome things. Octopuses can unseal a child-proof jar in less than an hour. Okay, human children, but still, that's pretty amazing. They could tell the difference between the letter V and the letter W, also the difference between a Honda and a VW, and this is amazing. When extremely bored, octopuses have been known to eat their own arms. So if you see a septopus, well, then you better bring your A-game as a rock and tour or work up an impression because this is an octopus that has already told you he's gotten really bored at least once in the past. There was this really cool experiment where they got a group of octopuses and locked them in a room with only the last three episodes of Mad Men to watch, and what they got back was a room full of pentapuses. It's really scary stuff. All these octopus facts are brought to you by the book, OCTOPUS! And it does have an exclamation. I am excited, but I also am going by the punctuation. OCTOPUS! The Most Mysterious Creature in the Sea by Katherine Harmon Courage. On the show today, no more octopus stuff, but we will talk about prosecuting bankers. It's not that popular. Why not? We'll ask Felix Salmon. And then polysyndeton. I'm going to teach you what polysyndeton is. It is a literary technique. You know it and you love it and you respond to it and you never knew why. And then on the spiel, Patton Oswald makes some jokes and the great outrage machine breaks in half and what spills out? is the spiel. But now, why not jail a banker? Any day now, the Justice Department could announce fines or charges against two big banks. Credit Suisse is said to have evaded taxes. BNP Paribas may have illegally traded with Iran. Eric Holder, the Attorney General, in speaking of these possible impending prosecutions, made this point that no bank is too big to jail. There is no such thing as too big to jail. A company's size will never be a shield from prosecution or penalty. That's clearly a shout out to critics who note that the U.S. financial crisis, which started in housing and spread everywhere, resulted in only one prosecution of a top banker, and he wasn't even that top a banker. Joining me now is Felix Ammon, He's senior editor at Fusion. He's also the host of a podcast called Slate Money, which will be available tomorrow. Are you the host? I am the host. Oh, that's awesome. So here we have Credit Suisse. We have Paribas. Foreign banks, by the way. Should we read into whatever's going to happen to them, fines or sanctions, as saying much about the non-prosecution of any of the malefactors that were involved in the U.S. financial crisis, or is it more comparing bad apples to rotten oranges?
0: Certainly neither of these prosecutions has anything to do with the financial crisis. And this is, if you look at the financial prosecutions more broadly, they've overwhelmingly, almost entirely been around insider trading, which again, had nothing to do with the financial crisis. There were many, many causes of the financial crisis and many different things went into it, but insider trading was not one of them. So while prosecutions are happening, and it's good to see big banks being prosecuted because for a while there, it looked as though they were what's known as too big to jail, Mm -hmm. So it's good to see that they get that these banks are being prosecuted, but certainly no one's being held to account for the most damaging behavior that the world has seen in the past few decades.
1: Jesse Isaacer in the New York Times Magazine had a big piece recently why only one top banker went to jail for the financial crisis. And there are a lot of reasons. Among them, the rules began to favor defendants like the Justice Department, couldn't pressure uh, people they were prosecuting to give up lawyers. Some of the mandatory minimums were eroded, so, you know, uh, people they were prosecuting wouldn't flip. Plus the funding. This is an Obama decision. They said they were going to fund these prosecutions to the tune of hundreds of millions. I think they got about $65 And then the Justice Department lost some key cases. And also, he talks about how prosecutors just don't want to lose. A lot of reasons. Do any of them strike you as more relevant than any of the others?
0: I think the big one is that it's a very clubby world, this sort of upper middle class world of professionals going into offices and moving paper around. And prosecutors look at criminals as you know as a different class of people doing a qualitatively different thing than what they do. And they look at these bankers who were doing their job and sure, maybe they broke some rules while they were doing the job, but it wasn't necessarily out of some sense of, you know, I'm going to commit a crime and reap the benefits for myself. And I think they sort of take pity on it and on them and have a feeling in the back of their heads of there, but for the grace of God.
1: So you're saying, I I haven't really heard this idea too much, that prosecutors actually recognize some humanity in this class of criminals in a way they don't against drug dealers or mafioso or some people like that.
0: Correct. And and in a way, they don't against insider traders as well, because in insider trading, you're very much going against your employer and you're not doing your job. You're doing the opposite of your job. And this is whereas what you're seeing in the financial crisis is a bunch of individuals in financial institutions teaming up and doing things which are wrong, but doing and certainly getting paid millions of dollars for doing so, but doing it in a way which looks as though it is credibly part of their job
1: mostly white guys in suits as part of a hierarchy who have advanced degrees from some of the same colleges. And advanced law degrees in many cases. Interesting. So here's what I wonder. Let's say there had been four, six, eight prosecutions of bankers. How much of a difference would that have made?
0: So Andrew Ross Sorkin has, if we're we're talking about New York Times Magazine stories, we may as well talk about the new one which just came out from Andrew Ross Sorkin interviewing Tim Geithner, the former Treasury Secretary, where Geithner recounts a conversation he had with Bill Clinton, and Clinton told Geithner that they could have slit Lloyd Blankfein's throat down a back, back dark alley, and that would placate the baying hordes for about two days before they kept on asking for more. I don't think that's true. I think that a couple of very high-profile CEO-level prosecutions would have made a world of difference. and. The fact that we see people like Dick Fold and Jimmy Kane just waltzing off into a low-key retirement and not suffering any of the kind of consequences that befell the average homeowner in Phoenix, say, yeah. the idea that they're better off than the people who really bore the brunt of the financial
1: crisis is quite disgusting. Dick Fold is the former head of Bear Stearns?
0: Dick Fold is the former
1: head of Lehman Brothers. Jimmy Kane is the former head of Bear Stearns. Right. That is probably true. I'm not sure they could have gotten the convictions. They're not sure they could have gotten the convictions. And this, to me, brings up another point. If, as a society the Justice Department wants to prosecute coke dealers. This is what they do. They look at the law. The law says coke dealing is illegal. It says if you have this much amount of coke, you're a coke dealer. Couldn't be clearer. But if you look at a, a lot of the laws, even the new laws that were written in response to the financial crisis, there's a lot of wiggle room. And I think that's uh, not very,
0: very, very few, I, I would say almost no new criminal laws were written in response to the financial crisis. We had new regulations. Yeah. Um, but you're right The if you look at the way that laws are written, they're written by the same white guys in suits with upper middle class jobs. There's no one representing the drug dealing classes in Congress, whereas virtually every single member of Congress is a member of those upper middle classes, professional classes, white collar classes. And so as a result, the laws governing the behavior in these institutions are much vaguer, much harder to prosecute, much harder to get Um, convictions. And that's one of the reasons why cases aren't brought, because as you say, it's hard to get convictions.
1: And I also think that if we're to be outraged, it is outrageous that a lot of these robber barons were allowed to be free men and robber barons. But still, I think the source of the outrage should be more at the system and should be more at the underlying facts rather than the decisions of a couple people, the underlying facts that um, allowed for these guys to skate free and, you know, analyzing what kind of regulations that we have as a society as opposed to, you know, would three, five or seven prosecutions have changed much?
0: What are you saying that we should have had different criminal laws which would have allowed 30 or 50 or 70 prosecutions. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I'm saying it should have been as clear to the people who were breaking the law that they were breaking the law as it is to a Coke dealer. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, say, liar loans, the people engaged in it didn't even think they were doing anything wrong.
0: You're absolutely right. And there was this feeling, quite a rational feeling of impunity. And you see this on Wall Street a lot, that so long as you're making money... The prophets cleanse all sins.
1: Felix Salmon will be hosting the new Slate Money podcast. His co-panelists will be Jordan Weissman and Kathy O'Neill. This podcast comes out every Saturday. Every Saturday. Every Saturday. Download it. Listen to it on a Saturday. 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 Listen to it on a Sunday. It doesn't
0: really matter. Listen to it on a Monday, but just listen to it, please. Because honestly, you will like it.
1: The American scholar recently printed a list of the 10 greatest sentences ever in the English language. No currents were beat against by boats. The times, be them best of or worst of, went unpraised. But here it is right now for you, the greatest sentence ever written. I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some... People out there in our nation don't
2: have that, And uh, I believe that our ed- education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as and...
1: Actually, that wasn't it. They didn't really say what the best sentence was and really what's the best sentence. But I'll tell you, the list did have some really nice sentences there. There was Hemingway and Jane Austen, Toni Morrison, and this from Joan Didion.
0: It was the United States of America in the cold late spring of 1967. And the market was steady and the GNP high, and a great many articulate people seemed to have a sense of high social purpose. And it might have been a spring of brave hopes and national promise, but it was not. And more and more people had the uneasy apprehension that it was not.
1: That's Joan Didion from Slouching Towards Bethlehem. I love that sentence, I love that style. I love that I just found out that it relies on a technique called polysyndeton. Polysyndeton is when you keep hitting the conjunction where a comma would have served, but you actually list out the conjunction. And I especially like the specific form of polysyndeton that hits the and again and again and again. Joan Didion knew its power, and she once wrote an entire New Yorker essay about the first paragraph of Farewell to Arms. In the late summer of that year we lived in a house in a village that looked
0: across the river and the plain to the mountains. In the bed of the river there were pebbles and boulders, dry and white in the sun, and the water was clear and swiftly moving and blue in the channels. Troops went by the house and down the road, and the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees. The trunks of the trees, too, were dusty, and the leaves fell early that year, and we saw the troops marching along the road and the dust rising in the leaves, stirred by the breeze, falling and the soldiers marching, and afterwards the road bare and white,
1: except for the leaves. So let's talk about it with Ben Yagoda, professor at the University of Delaware and author of How to Not Write Bad. Hello, Ben. Mike, hi. Is it just me? Am I uh, crazy that I like this and thing? What's the power of polysyndeton, especially with uh, the and version of polysyndeton?
2: Well, definitely not just you. The the writers of the Bible liked it. Uh, Milton, John Milton, liked it. Uh, He said of Satan in his course through chaos that he pursues his way and swims or sinks or wades or creeps or flies. Yeah. So that's the OR version. Uh and no question it's 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 got a it's got a power to it. And God
1: saw everything that he had made and behold it was good and the yeah. evening and the morning were the sixth day. You're right. The King us. James Bible. Probably the best written of the bibles, I would say.
2: No question. There are all these examples out there so when a Hemingway or a Didion, maybe maybe not the Milton but the modern versions they are they're going for an implicit comparison with the Bible, mm-hmm. which is a fairly audacious thing to do, and sometimes it works. The danger is that you come off as not only portentous, but pretentious. Yeah. That you can't do, like, a laundry list or a shopping list, I must buy the Wheaties and the Cheerios and the Pop-Tarts, yay, very, you know, it becomes a little bit of a parody.
1: Actually, right here, I have a Lil Wayne song. So maybe you can, if you're Lil Wayne.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could pull it off. <laughs> you you, keep, you have to keep Wheaties and Cheerios out, I think is kind of the key.
1: <laughs> and he looked upon the Cheerios, and lo, they were good, and they lo, they good. had holes. It's it's a big swing. It's uh, Joan Didion can pull it off, and it has this grandiosity.
2: I think I once said that uh, Joan Didion and Frank Sinatra have one thing in common, the voice. I mean, they both Mm. have an absolutely identifiable, magnificent voice. And for Didion, to me, it's that that portentous idea that that there's a portent there. Uh, Her rhetorical style is such, including this and the, the length of the sentence, the periodic sentence that she uses, that... The idea is that the reader starts to wonder, well, wh- why is she talking this way? Is she's, What has gotten her so worked up that she's not talking in a normal sort of E.B. White way? Yeah. So it goes along with the theme, and she's always writing about some trouble afoot in the land or in her psyche or usually both. You hear
1: the technique, you hear the and. I'm stuck on the and version but uh, of Polysyndeton. Maybe someone, you know... Pounding their fist or pounding a table. You, you think of a comma. Comma is just something you find in the office, you know? comma is not special. <laughs> uh, the and brings you there. And I think that a lot of lyricists know that. You know, here are songs by The Hold Steady. We drink and we
0: dry up and now we crumble in the dust.
1: And the cranberries. Sometimes and is just used for the rhythmic placeholder, but other times you could hear it really heightens the power of the lyric.
2: Right, and I think the, the, the rhythm, you know, in a sort of iambic uh, thing, and this, and this, or and da-da, and da-da, and da-da, it's got that repetitive thing that, that would work for sure in, in lyrics.
1: And now in journalism, if someone tried it, what would be your advice? Do it with care? You know, this is a big web, This is a scythe. This is something that could really hurt and cut both ways.
2: Right. You know, I think if you're writing for sort of a daily newspaper, it's not going to get through the copy desk. They're going to go, you know, what? Well, what What are they trying to do? Um, when you get to, to magazine writing and more literary kind of stuff, yes, you use it with care. I mean, I'm writing now... Uh, a book about music popular music of an of an earlier era and i find that i'm using a lot of lists so i'm you know saying songwriters like berlin rogers gershwin and porter well it the normal that's the norm um and it it sounds a little dull and the tendency of a reader to just slide right by it yeah. So once in a while, I'll just use the and you reminded me that it's called polysyndeton which is a great word. So I'll say writers like Berlin and Rogers and Porter and Gershwin, and it's not like a Joan Didion pounding your fist thing, but it's a, it's a kind of little italicization that um, isn't isn't too out there, but just gets people to to pay attention and listen and not say oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah yeah so we can work in small ways too
1: those middle words don't get lost like Jan Brady
2: <laughs> you know uh, I, why did I not expect you'd have a reference that went way over my head
1: <laughs> the middle child on the Brady Bunch
2: oh the middle child yeah Bunch. yeah yeah good. those are the Jan now, Brady
1: words those are the Peter Brady words yeah
2: let me ask you do you know what the opposite of polysyndeton is
1: it's probably uh An and, syndeton, and A-syndeton. A-syndeton.
2: A-syndeton. very good yeah Leaving out the conjunction, so Edmund Spencer, the fairy queen, uh, had the line, faint, weary, sore, emboiled, grieved, brent, with heat, toil, wounds, arms, smart, and inward fire. Uh, so that's some, some pretty heavy-duty ascendeton there.
1: That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. So commas are just uh, jejune. Well, this man who has brought you insight and erudition and engagement and joy is Ben Yugoda. Professor at the University of Delaware and has written such books as when you catch an adjective, kill it, the parts of speech for better and or worse. Ben, thank you so much.
2: Mike, thank you and goodbye and good night.
1: And now I want to take a second to plug Slate Plus. Slate Plus is the $5 a month or $50 a year program where if you're really into Slate and the podcast, you get all this extra content like you get podcasts without ads and you get, and this is true, so in uh, trying to figure out what are the best song lyrics that demonstrate polysyndeton I sent out an email to the rest of the staff and there was this big discussion where there were a lot of uh, suggestions given. Sometimes we take internal emails we will put them up for Slate Plus members. It's for the people who are really into Slate and there's a good way to support the gist directly through slate plus it's slate.com slash go on there and you can sign up and get a free trial thanks and now for the spiel i would like to apologize to any and all slovenians who i may have offended back in episode two I honestly had no idea that my character of Poki Pivka touched on the cultural nerve that it did, nor did I realize that the tradition of Pifka voice is deemed insensitive to some. Additionally, I had no idea how fraught the subject of salt is among the Slovene community. All right, I will come clean. I made no such jokes. That never happened. Episode 2 was devoid of Slovene material. I don't have to apologize to them anyway. Slovenes are really cool and could take a joke. But the comedian Patton Oswalt did something similar, and dare I say, did something funnier, on Twitter recently. He began tweeting apologies for insensitive jokes that he had previously deleted, but the gag was he hadn't actually made the original offensive joke in the first place. Some examples. Please disregard the last tweet, already deleted. Transphobia is hurtful. And I'm a big fan of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And previous tweet, very hurtful, already deleted. At Kim Kardashian and at Joe Biden are national treasures, as are our Native American friends. Penn Oswald is, I think, my favorite comedian. Those tweets were funny. They depend on doing a little work on the part of the reader, which leads to a burst of revelation. You know, how all jokes depend on upending expectations. So it works. And then the tag about Hedwig, that's how, you know, insensitive people like to avow their progressive credentials by saying how much they like a piece of pop culture. So what I did just there was dissect the frog, which you now understand it, but I killed the joke in the process. All right, so soon... Oswald started tweeting out some messages that he was getting about people who were offended, offended by the tweets he never actually made. And some of them totally missed the joke, but then others were saying things like, look, I know you were, or they say it in the Twitter language. Look, I know you were implying this was a rape joke. I don't think rape jokes are funny. So have your debate there. But Oswald was also getting credit for exemplifying a couple of truths about the internet. Like the internet is an outrage machine and that modernity is trending towards constant mass umbrage. So let's think about those claims for a second, because I did. We can all cite the easy examples of the culture of outrage, where the outrage clearly stemmed from opportunism or cynicism or ignorance, like the recent one where John Kerry said, if it doesn't embrace the two-state solution, Israel could become an apartheid state. Cue the outrage. He should resign, says Michelle Bachman and Ted Cruz. Never mind that other actual prime ministers of Israel have said the same thing using the same word. Culture of outrage. Or when Alec Baldwin used the anti-gay slur. Alec Baldwin is a homophobe. Drive him out of MSNBC. Or Colbert makes a joke about Asians. Or George Allen uses the word macaca in a video. Or Joe Biden calls Obama clean. Outrage! Hey, but you know what? Wait a minute. You may have said, as I was going through those examples, you may have said, that one doesn't belong in the list. That utterance actually was outrageous. And there's the rub. Cries of outrage are like cries of political correctness. It's a label that's apt only when we think the underlying behavior is really no big deal or serves a purpose like sarcasm. Just last week, it was announced that Donald Sterling would be stripped of the Los Angeles Clippers, his basketball team, because he was racist on an audio tape. Is that faux outrage? No, you're saying that's a truly outrageous statement. Yeah, of course, sure it was. But you know what? The whole incident actually does fit into this idea of the culture of outrage, of a mob working itself into a paroxysm of rage over an ephemeral piece of media more than it seems like a considered contemplation about what to do about a serious situation. Twitter abets the culture of outrage. It's instant, it's widespread, it's accessible to hashtag activists. But I think the big reason that Twitter spurs outrage is that it's 140 characters, no context. There is so much information these days that it's hard to process much more than Paula Dean once used the N word. Hey, that is all I need to know. And guess what? On Twitter, that's all you're gonna know. Reacting from the gut is so easy. I think on Facebook we should replace that vestigial poke button with a condemn button. But almost every one of the examples I talked about is softened if you give it more context. So my advice, even when the statement seems outrageous to your ears and your gut, is to apply a broader rule of thumb to say that maybe the sentence or half sentence is less than the true expression of the commenter's soul and more accurately seen as a decontextualized scrap that someone else is trying to get a retweet on. In summary, I am sorry if I offended you, Hedwig, Slovenians, Richard Mendenhall, George Allen's videographer, or anyone else whose cleanliness has been noted by the vice president. And that is it for today's show. I hope we've earned your trust and can get you back next week to do it all again. The show is produced by Andrea Salenzi, who apologizes for two separate tweets. One was supporting the bass player Donald Duck Dunn, and the other supporting a cast reunion of Dynasty, so that's how that thing happened. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is very sorry if he offended any of the community of competitive eaters. Jessica Winter played Joan Didion today. The role of Ernest Hemingway was played by Chris Wade. Laura Zazzam assisted us in many ways. Some of the music you heard on this week's show was made by Broke For Free, Medium Fish, Chris Zabriskie, Salmo, A Thousand Names, C. Scott, Anion Boxcat Games. Guess what? I made up one of those names. You could email us with your guess about which is the fake band name. And you could subscribe to iTunes and give us a review. You could search for Slate Gist in your favorite podcast app on your Android or iOS device or their Stitcher or TuneIn or SoundCloud. All good ways to listen. We'll be in the Slate Daily podcast. The Gist email option is really awesome and easy now. Slate.com slash Gist email. That'll sign you up right there slate.com slash gist email. Then the email comes to your inbox and you can actually play the show from the email. Amazing. Octopus level amazing. You can send us email at thejust@slate.com. Let us know what you think. Please remember to delight and entertain your cephalopods. And thanks for listening.